For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Several years ago, uh, I was working with a guy, and we would at work begin to, to talk about different you know, spiritual concepts. We would talk about the Lord and, and the Bible and different things like this. Well, one day we were talking about Christ and salvation and heaven and, and uh, what happens after death and hell and all that good stuff. And uh, at one point in the conversation, I quoted to him John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And let me tell you something. When I mentioned the wrath of God, my coworker had a conniption fit. He went ballistic. He started saying, what do you mean the wrath of God? How can you believe in such a thing? He said, the wrath of God, Jerry, is so Old Testament. Why don't you read your New Testament? Jesus shows us that God is love. If you believe that God is a God of wrath, then you have a contradiction in the Bible because the Bible tells us that God is love. How can God be a God of love and a God of wrath? That doesn't even make sense. And after all, how can God be a God of love and pour out wrath on the innocent person, the tribesman in the middle of the Amazonian jungle who has never heard the name of Jesus Christ? How is it loving and just and fair of God to pour out wrath on somebody who's never even heard the name of Jesus before? How can you even believe such a thing? Well, to answer his questions, I brought him to this morning's sermon text. But truthfully, he did not find our passage very comforting. <laughs> uh, in fact, uh, he got angrier than what he was. See, he was a religion major. He wasn't actually a follower of Christ. And here's the thing, church, to those who don't follow Christ, the language of this Romans passage is actually more objectionable than John 3.36. And we'll especially see that as we go deeper into it next week <laughs> and the language that is in the passage next week. But our text is it's an important one this morning. Let's remember the context that we're dealing with here. In verse 17, Paul has told us that the gospel reveals a righteousness from God that comes by faith alone in Jesus Christ and that he is compelled, he is obligated to preach this gospel to the Gentile nations. Now, why is Paul so compelled, so concerned to preach this gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ to the Gentile nations? The answer is in verse 18. It begins in verse 18. Verse 18 actually begins a digression. 
a digression that is going to carry us all the way to chapter 4. And then Paul will come back to what he was talking about in verse 17. So we have several chapters of a digression here, but it's an important digression because if the gospel is the good news, in this digression, Paul tells us the bad news that applies to all of the Gentile nations of the world, and in fact, the the bad news that even applies to the Jews The bad news is that apart from the gospel, all of humanity is under the wrath of God. Apart from Jesus Christ and a relationship with him, Jew, Gentile, moral person, immoral person, religious person, irreligious person, all are under the wrath of God. Not a popular concept, the wrath of God. But before we deal with it, we need to lay some important groundwork from these verses. A couple of important observations and applications from them. Let's start with verse 19 and see how God has graciously and clearly revealed himself to humanity. Verse 19 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without, what's that last word? Excuse. God has graciously and clearly revealed himself to humanity. This is called general revelation. It's general revelation because everyone can perceive it. It's rooted in creation itself. Through this creation revelation, people can become aware of certain things about God. Through our natural senses, we don't necessarily are able to prove that God exists, but through general revelation, nevertheless, we can perceive that He exists. There's a lot of things in our lives that we know is true, but you cannot prove it by the scientific method, right? There's all kinds of things. I know it's true, just don't ask me to prove it according to science, right? I know I love my wife, but I can't put it into a formula. But my senses and all the things, I know it's true. And this is what general revelation does for us, right? Um, The Bible tells us in Psalm chapter 19, verse 1, the heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard, yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. This is general revelation. How is God revealed through general revelation? What can we know about God? Hey, listen, you can look at the power that is in creation and perceive that God is omnipotent and powerful. This morning, I walked out of my house around 6.30 in the morning, and there's an oak tree in my front yard, and overnight, I don't know what these things are called that my wife planted around the oak tree, but they bloomed overnight and they were beautiful. I actually went over and took a picture of them. Of course, I had to put it on Instagram, you know, and all. But here it is, the grandeur and majesty of God. We see it within the beauty of creation, don't we? 
We see the intelligence of God within the design of our world. The creativity of God is seen within the intricacy of nature. The holiness of God is perceived within the laws that have transcended the civilizations of our world. How is it that across the national boundaries, the tribal boundaries, the cultural and civilization boundaries that exist, there are certain laws that seem to be universal to mankind, and they have been through the ages. And whether it's here in America or it's some tribe in New Zealand who's had no interaction with the rest of the known world, there is something within us that says it is wrong to murder our own people. Why is that? Because we've been created in the image of God. And that image is holy. That holiness of God tells us it's wrong to murder. The sovereignty of God is seen in the orderliness of the seasons, the providence of God, and the fact that the rain and the good, uh, shines or falls upon the good and the bad alike, the sun shines upon the evil and the righteous alike. There's, there's consistency in creation. The created world it tells us something important. The created world tells us that we are not in charge. <laughs> Every hurricane that comes along, we're reminded, aren't we, that we are not in control, that we are finite human beings. We look at this world that we are in, and the more we look at it, the more we realize how finite we are in comparison to what is around us And so how did this thing come about? That creator must be infinite, right? This revelation of God is so clear, he says, that any attempts at doubting his existence or denying his existence are simply disingenuous excuses. No matter how it's dressed up, this disdain of God, it's not intellectual, it's not scholastic, it's not scientific in its origin, it is spiritual and moral in its genesis, and it's insidious. No matter how sound, high-sounding it is, do not be fooled, God says. It's not intellectual in its origin, it's spiritual. And that leads us to a, a, really a terrifying application from this passage. Secondly, humanity willfully rebels against God and his self-revelation. There's three words that will help us understand the, the depth of this rebellion. And the three words are this, suppression, rejection, and distortion, suppression, rejection, distortion. By the way, we'll hit a fourth word next week, perversion. But for now, three words, suppression, rejection, distortion. Let's start with suppression. Instead of acknowledging the truth, humanity actively resists the truth that God reveals. In verse 18, 
He says, I am bringing about my wrath against those who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. To be clear, let's be clear. God is speaking here. And what does he say? I have revealed to myself to humanity within nature. There is no mystery here. I have revealed myself to a certain extent and it is plain. I have shown myself to you. The issue isn't that humanity cannot know certain things about God through creation. The issue is that humanity doesn't like the truth it sees in general revelation. So, mankind suppresses it. That's the issue. Not that God can't be seen, but we don't like what we see. And what we learn. So we suppress it. That, that word suppression, uh, it means an active, ongoing resistance. A continual pushing down of what is obvious. Um, maybe the way of illustrating this, uh, when we lived up in North Florida in Fleming Island, uh, we had a swimming pool that I just absolutely loved. And the reason why I loved it, it was big and it was deep. It was 10 and a half feet deep. And when you're my size, you love a deep pool, right? And uh, I remember that one day Jacob came out and he was about four years old. And I was in the pool and I played a little stunt on him. I took a, a blue beach ball that was kind of hard to see in the water. And I put it down underneath me and I got it between my legs and, you know, scooched down. And I sat on it, you know, and I was kind of holding it on. And, uh, and it floated me up to the top. And it looked like I was just sitting right on top of the water, right? And so he comes walking out in his little boots and whatnot. And I think he's three, four years old. And I'm sitting there and I'm just, you know, looking like I'm sitting on a chair. And I go, hey, son, how you doing? His eyes got about that big. He couldn't figure out what was I doing. And I'm carrying on a conversation. And he goes, dad, what, you know, daddy, what are you going on? He goes, son, I have this, I have this ability. I can sit on top of the water. You know, and I'm, and of course, you know, on top of the, from here up, I look as calm as can be, but you know what was going on underneath the water? <clears throat> I was doing all kinds of this, gyrations, and I was working, and I mean, I was putting forward all kinds of effort to get, by the way, that's about my best dance move that I have right there, okay? Um, I was doing all kinds of effort to keep that ball under the water because if I didn't keep it under control, what was going to happen? It was going to shoot to the surface and it would be obvious to everybody what was really going on, right? That's what God says is happening right now. With humanity, we are, this is what we do. We're pushing it down and we go through all kinds of gyrations, intellectual, spiritual, psychological, moral gyrations and effort to not let what is obvious blow up to the surface. Suppression. Then there's rejection. Instead of glorifying and thanking the true God, humanity ignores him. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. You know, the depths of man's sin and rebellion is seen in the extremes we will go to not acknowledge him as the creator. You know, C.S. Lewis used to, to debate and talk and write about this, and frankly, he would just get so exasperated 
over this. I mean, rather than acknowledge the simplest explanation for why we have this wonderful universe and we live in these incredible bodies, rather than acknowledge that an intelligent creator, you, you don't have to admit that it's the God of the Bible yet, okay? But rather than just admit that there has to be an intelligent creator who masterfully designed everything, humanity will embrace scientific theories of random chance that defy all reasonable and logical mathematical probabilities. It's unbelievable. Humanity's rebellion is such that we will ignore what is obvious and embrace the fanciful so that we do not have to glorify God. It's so ridiculous that scientists will actually say and philosophers will actually give analogies like this. Well, you know, if you put, enough, you put a bunch of monkeys in a room and you give them enough time at a typewriter, it's inevitable that given enough time, sooner or later, they will perfectly reproduce Shakespeare's Hamlet. Oh, come on. <laughs> when, when, when you resort to that level of mental and intellectual gymnastics to try to, to prove that God doesn't exist and it's all random chance, there's something else going on here, right? Uh, R.C. Sproul dug into this back in the 70s. He wrote a book that was really exploring the psychology behind atheism. And this is one of the things that he said. He said, the New Testament maintains that unbelief is generated not so much by intellectual causes as by moral and psychological ones. The problem is not that there is insufficient evidence to convince rational beings that there is a God, but that rational beings have a natural antipathy or aversion or hatred to the being of God. In a word, the nature of God, or at least the Christian God, is repugnant to man and is not the focus of desire or wish projection. Man's desire is not that Yahweh exists. Man's desire is that he does not exist. That's what's going on. We need to understand this, church, as we interact with humanity, that rather than accommodate and try to engage at intellectual levels and as if their theories have validity, no, they do not. It is spiritual darkness at work. This is a spiritual issue that is at play. There is suppression, there's rejection, there's distortion. Instead of worshiping the true God, humanity turns to idolatry. Claiming to be wise, verse 22 says, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, Sproul points out that we do not like God. That's what it really comes down to. We hate the idea of God, of Yahweh, the God of the Bible. Moreover, what it really comes down to is we want to be God. That's the nub 
of the matter. We want to be God. We want our autonomy. We want our independence. We want our freedom. We want to be in control. Church, this is the sin of our original parents in the Garden of Eden. When you go back to Genesis, it's at the core of the human heart. We reject God's sovereignty in our lives, and instead we turn to self-created gods that give us control over our lives that we think will provide us with whatever it is that we want. And this cycle of idolatry that we engage in, the scriptures tell us, is the height of foolishness because it does not deliver on freedom. Instead, it leads to enslavement. We take matters into our own hands. We create our own God. We, we want security and comfort. And so we turn to our own power. We turn to the idol of, of a substance, for example. And that substance gives us a sense of, of strength and comfort and security for a while. But what do we find over time is that that, I, that thing that we're trusting in instead of God, that thing that we're relying upon instead of God, this thing which is now our, uh, something that we worship and rely upon, that we think we control, actually ends up controlling us and enslaving us. And instead of being free, we ultimately become slaves to this sin. Here's the horrible paradox of idolatry. We're seeking autonomy and independence and freedom, thinking that by doing this, getting away from the God of the universe, will have this freedom and autonomy and all it actually ends up leading to is slavery and death. God's response to our willful rebellion against his self-revelation is wrath. Wrath. So now we're back to where we started in verse 18. Not a comfortable topic, but we can't flinch from the truth of God's wrath. And if there's one thing that I want you to walk away with this morning on this subject is this. It's that God's wrath towards our rebellion reveals both his holiness and his love. God's wrath towards our rebellion reveals both his holiness and his love. Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. It's tempting, I understand, especially in today's culture, to gloss over the idea that God can be a God of wrath. If we gloss over it, if we explain it away, if we ignore it, here's what we do. We create God in our own image. We break one of the Ten Commandments. If you open up any concordance and you look up the verses for wrath, <clears throat> anger, righteous anger, God's anger, God's fury, you know, words along those lines, you will find that there are more references to that than there are to God's love and his gentleness and tenderness. 
So what is the wrath of God? We need to understand what is the wrath of God here. Uh, one word in the New Testament that you see associated with anger and wrath is the word thumos, from which we get the word thermometer, right? And, and that is not a good word. That is the word that is used in verses that talk about anger being sin. This is talking about, you know, when we get out of control, our amygdala fires off and we see red, you know, that expression, oh, I saw red, that's thumos, right? You, you fire up, you get hot under the collar, you say things you shouldn't say, you're reacting, and normally that anger, that emotion, it's, it's selfish in its, in its orientation, it's, it's just sin, that is not what the wrath of God is. It's not God flying off the handle, losing control, being vindictive and petty, getting angry and retaliating against some perceived slight against his personage. Not at all. It's not thumos. The word that is used for wrath is a different word. It's called orge. Orge is defined in my favorite lexicon as the strong indignation directed at wrongdoing with a focus on retribution. Again, it is strong indignation, we might say righteous indignation, right? Directed at wrongdoing with a focus on retribution. The lexicon goes on and says, it is the feeling that is in the heart of a judge who is at trial and the case is presented to him and it is obvious that this is wrong, it is the breaking of the law, it's egregious offense, and the emotion, the feeling that is arises in the heart of that judge to make it right, to rectify this breaking of the law, that is wrath, orge. It is a controlled response to wrongdoing. God's wrath is a part of his divine character and it's associated with his holiness. It works in parallel with his righteousness. Okay? Well, that's what we need to understand. Wrath is, and with God, it is a manifestation of his holiness. It's, it goes arm in arm with righteousness. Because he's holy, God loves what is good. He loves what is righteous. He loves what is just. But for God to love what is good and righteous and just, the converse has to also be true. He loathes, he hates, he despises sin and unrighteousness and wickedness. For one to be true, the converse has to be true. Okay? So in verse 18, the intentional suppression of, of the truth that he has given to humanity. This is no accidental minor infraction on the part of the Gentile nations, Paul says. This is a treasonous, rebellious act. It is an act of self-glorification, of self-worship at the expense of the Almighty God, and God will not tolerate that. He cannot as a holy God, allow a human being to steal his glory. Can't happen. It is an act that we, Paul says, as Gentiles, especially the Gentile nations, specialize in. See, in verse 18, and these verses, and this passage and the passage next week, 
He's really focusing on the Gentile nations. He's helping us to understand, this is why I'm going to the Gentiles and bringing them the gospel. Because the Gentile nations, man, they suppress the truth. Now the Jews, they have their own problem. He doesn't get to them in a little bit, but this is what happens among the Gentile nations. We need the gospel because we suppress the truth. We need it because we commit treasonous rebellion against God. And because he's holy, he has to respond to our rebellion with wrath. With wrath. But Jerry, isn't God love? God is love. Talk about God being love all the time. Doesn't compute. Is it God love? Yes. Yes, He is. But church, understand God's love and God's wrath are not mutually exclusive. God's love and God's wrath are not mutually exclusive. They are tightly woven together. Which is why in part, we find Paul right on the heels of announcing the righteousness of God and the gospel turning to wrath. They're woven together. Love and wrath are not incompatible. In fact, Tim Keller says a, a wrathless God is a loveless God. Isn't that an interesting statement? What, what's he mean by that? Well, I, I, I actually thought about that, and, and I thought about uh, some dear friends of mine, uh, a husband and wife, parents, who have a son who struggled with substance abuse. And uh, their son made multiple, I mean, once, once he went away to college, he made multiple bad decisions. Um, he, he got into a fraternity, he started drinking, he started taking drugs, he started living a promiscuous lifestyle, he started doing these things to excess, his grades started suffering, he started becoming listless in his life, he started getting in trouble with the law, he started driving while intoxicated, he got his license taken away, he got arrested, just one thing after another after another, he finally graduated, he had a hard time holding down a job, his life was just going all over the place. And as I walked with my friends down this journey, what I saw was this, they loved their son passionately, but they hated the addict in him. Okay? They loved their son, but they loathed the sinful behavior associated with his addictions. And when he manipulated and he lied and he acted selfishly and he put himself in danger, their love for their son provoked them. I would see them get angry. But their anger was not some selfish, petty anger for themselves. Their anger was out of love for their son. It was a righteous indignation. It was alarm that their son's life was in danger, that he was destroying himself. They could not sit passively by. It would not have been loving to be indifferent to what was happening in his life and how he was destroying himself. It would not have been loving to just say, well, it's his life. I hope he figures it all out. 
They started with words, didn't they? They started with words of alarm. They, they started with words of mess, messages of love and concern. They started then, they ramped it up, and they would go and they would see him, and they, would, they saw him in jail. They, they bailed him out. They tried to get him help. And, but as the, the, that progressed, they finally intervened. They did a big family intervention, and they grabbed him, and they got him into a program. And, and one thing after another, thankfully, by the way, the story has a great ending. <laughs> They saved their son's life. And in that progression, I saw all kinds of anger and indignation and alarm, wrath from these parents. But it was all rooted in love for their son. You see, wrath can be evil if it's selfishly oriented. That's the thumos kind of wrath and anger. But when it's for the good of someone else, that's righteous anger and righteous indignation. This is the wrath of God. You know, in a similar way, God's love for us, it provoked a response, a response of righteous indignation. He didn't ignore our sin, church, right? He, he did not respond with indifference. He responded with the perfect combination of love and wrath. For in the gospel, we see God making him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. What we see in the gospel is God loving us so much, he acted and he poured out his wrath for our sin on his son. This is the gospel. This is the truth. And this is why we must not run from the fact that God loves us. But God is holy, and in His holiness, there is a perfect combination of love and wrath. Father, we thank You that You loved us enough to pour out Your wrath in our sins, on our sins on Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that You would be with the one here who does not know You yet that they would turn to you and understand that the idols that they are relying upon are not giving them freedom, they're just enslaving them more, that true freedom comes in committing to Christ and believing the gospel. Lord, many of us here have trusted. Father, help us to better appreciate what you have done in the gospel by understanding your wrath towards our sin. By understanding... That when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment in time, he endured the full force of your wrath for our sins. And that in enduring that wrath, it reveals to us the depth of love that you have for us. 
Lord Jesus, you love us so much that you would endure that kind of wrath for us. You love us that much to endure that kind of wrath. How much more can we trust you with every facet of our life this week? Whatever it is we come into this room with this morning, we can turn it over to you because you've already experienced the very worst thing in this universe because you loved us that much. What good news the gospel is. We praise you, Lord Jesus. Amen.